Thank you, Dr. Carson. That was awesome. I'm uh, Mike Palumpo. I'm at uh, New Hope Central Oahu in uh, Mililani. Woohoo! There's a couple of pastors over there from Mililani. And uh, really appreciate what you were saying about the last days. In fact, we were just talking about that in the car, how fish are dying and birds are falling out of the sky and that type of thing going on all over the world. And um, my question is, what do you... Um, how do you think the uh, how do you think the church is doing uh, in in this time that we're in? So, and uh, and I'm not trying to create uh, a comparative thing, but yeah, is, is there a, a model that you're looking at, particularly about how church ought to approach this time that we're in and the culture that we're in? And I'm thinking mostly about North America, Canada, and America. I mean, and the U.S. Um, any churches doing it right out there? I mean, you know, I'm just curious what you think about that. In the last 150 years, there have been more conversions to Christ than in the previous 1,800 combined. In the last 150 years, there have been more martyrs than in the previous 1,800 combined. And it really is important not to have too narrowly North American a focus. Um, I, I often spend time in Asia. And when you think of the growth of the church in China, for example, and in some other places, or South Korea as compared with North Korea and so on, it really is remarkable or the growth of evangelicalism, even if a lot of it is superficial in Latin America. Um, so I am often reminded of the parable of the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the weeds, where Jesus says, let both grow until the end. So there are some Christians who are eternally optimistic and think we're going to get better and better as Christians take over more and more. And there are other Christians who are eternally pessimistic and are convinced it's all going to end with disaster. And as far as I can see, Jesus still says, let both grow until the end. So I'm neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, and I work for a non-profit organization. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, let me tell you what will happen. Um, there will be more conversions, more outreach, more growth, more suffering, more persecution, more violence until the end. Now, how that will be distributed around the world, I don't have any idea. But um, it's possible that in the West there will be massive judgment and more opposition. And you, th you think of what's going on in Europe today. Um, it's, it's the only continent now where things are still in massive spiritual decline. But it's possible that God could bring about renewal and reformation and revival there, too. I mean, he's, he's capable of, of doing that sort of thing. Um, one forgets that in 1740 in England, things had fallen into such massive spiritual disrepair that at St. Paul's Cathedral in London on Easter Sunday in 1740, precisely six people showed up for Holy Communion. That's it. There were 280 crimes on the book for which you could be hanged, including stealing a loaf of bread. 
you were at the pulsating heart of the Industrial Revolution. The rich were getting richer, the poor were getting poorer, and justice was everywhere. 1738, George Whitfield. 1740, the Wesley Brothers. And for 60 years, the gospel made such massive transformation that at the end of the day in 1832, you had the Great Reform Bill. And with it, the abolition of slave trade. And with it, revolutionary laws to, to promote justice, all brought about by this power of the God. God's not finished yet. You, you don't want to get too pessimistic because pessimism is essentially atheistic. It acts as if God is dead. So what will happen? I don't know. God may send judgment, but he may send yet massive reformation and revival. But if he does, I'm sure that in some parts of the world, maybe our parts, it'll be accompanied by persecution, opposition, malice. Why should any of that surprise us? So when people ask me to paint with a big brush in terms of what's going around the world, that's the sort of thing that I want to say. There is enormous diversity. I could point to churches that are proving to be immensely fruitful. I could point to churches that are proving to be immensely disappointing. What I am sure is that the basics of gospel fidelity, uh, heraldic proclamation of the good news, trying to build our churches in conformity with the word of God without fear or favor, not being too frightened by cultural pressures, um, being prepared to put up with a, a bit of opposition and wearing it as a badge of honor, learning to avoid bitterness or smart aleck snarkiness, y y you know, still to love men and women for Jesus' sake. Those are the things that, that uh, the Lord uh, chose to be the fruit of, of genuine conversion and gospel power. We've got about 20 more minutes. And if you don't ask questions, you just have to sit there. <laughs> Name and church. Um, I'm Alan Lee from Calvary Chapel, Waiwa. Thank you for coming. It's, it's been excellent. Uh, I'm in Hebrews, going into chapter 6, verses 4 and 6. So, talk to me about it. <laughs> <laughs> tell me your, tell me your, your, what, either, you know what, I've read, you know, I've studied it, exegeted it, and I've looked at the commentaries, and there's a million, there seems to be about eight or nine major interpretations of that scripture. What, I'd just like to hear what you, what do you say about it? Just tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just tell me the truth. Well. Probably anything I say in brief compass is likely just to divide the camp. But here we go. Before you read chapter 6 of Hebrews, you're supposed to read chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Good. But then when you read chapter 3 in particular, you come to the treatment of the Israelites in the Old Testament who uh, escaped from Egypt but did not get into the promised land at least that whole first generation. And in that framework, God says things like 3.14, we have been made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. That is to say, it sounds as if that is almost a definition of real Christianity. We have been made partakers of Christ if we stick it out to the end. That's almost the definition. Now, there are a lot of texts that say things like that in the Bible when you start looking for them. For example, to those who had believed in Jesus in John 8, 30, 
Jesus said, 831, if you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Or 1 John 2, many went out from us in order that it might be made clear that they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that they were not of us. In other words, by definition, the real guys stick. By definition. And many other passages. If you want, read Colossians 1, 21 to 23, um, the, the seed on rocky ground in the parable of the soil. I'm convinced that it all runs along the same line. So when you come to Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 in particular, there are, as you say, eight or nine biggies. But in fact, most of them can be reduced to three or four. Um, one group says that the judgment that they receive if they fall away is falling away from ministry. It's, it's, it's falling away from service, but not falling away from salvation. Um, with respect, that sounds too much like a cop-out, especially in chapter 10 where the language is really, really strong. The crucifying God afresh to open shame, Christ afresh to open shame, shame and language like that there and in the Petrines and so on. It, it, I, I don't think that's the way to go. A view that has become increasingly popular in recent years um, owing to the influence of my dear friend John, uh, Tom Schreiner and a few others, uh, who, whose uh, work I generally hold in very high regard, is on this issue, in my view, mistaken. That is, they argue that the warning passages work. That is, because the warning is given, therefore people are um, warned off falling away, and therefore the result is an empty set. Uh, the warnings are given precisely with the result that nobody actually ever does fall away. It's, the, it's one form of a hypothetical view. But it's, it's a hypothetical view. It's a hypothetical view strengthened by the insistence that that's why the passage is actually given, to guarantee that it will remain only hypothetical. Do, 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 do you see? Um, the problem with that view, in my view, is, in the first instance, logic. Because the more you believe that view the less effective it becomes. In other words, as long as you view the set as being finally empty, then the more you believe that the threat is only hypothetical, the less it's a threat. So it's hard to see that it's an effective threat that guarantees the set is empty when you know in advance that the set's going to be empty. Do you, do you, do you see? I, I, just, I just find it a very, very difficult one to swallow, that one. Um, and there are others, of course, who take the view that you really can lose your salvation. Uh, and there are some, including my dear friend Doug Moo, who argues that if we only had this passage, that is Hebrews 3, uh, he would probably take it to, uh, Hebrews 6 rather, he would pro probably take it to mean that you can lose your salvation. Um, but I'm not even sure that that's right if you've read chapter 3 first. What I take it to mean is... It depends on recognizing that sometimes the language of conversion is phenomenological. That is, it is descriptive of what appears to be the case. That was so, for example, in the passage I quoted a few minutes ago in 1 John 2. They went out from us in order that it might be made clear that they were not of us. You can hear John struggling with what does it mean they went out from us. It means they were baptized members in good standing in the church who were accepted as Christians. But they went out from us. And their going showed that they were not of us. That is, despite the fact that they were baptized members in good standing in the church, 
and thus seem to be Christians, their falling away showed that they were not finally of us. So phenomenologically, they were Christians. Their going showed that they weren't really Christians after all. And so you need to be aware of the problems in that regard. So drawing then back from the analogy of Israel that was saved out from slavery, but was not saved into the promised land. So I take it that conversion itself is sometimes a little more complex than we make it out to be. There are some people, like the seed that falls on rocky ground in Palestine, where the, the soil is... Uh, rocky ground in Palestine means a thin layer of topsoil and under that limestone bedrock. And so uh, when seed falls into that sort of soil, it heats up the fastest in the spring and therefore germinates the seed the fastest and therefore seems to be producing the, most, the, 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 the best of the crop. But then the early rains stop and the, the roots go down looking for moisture, hit the limestone bedrock, the plant keels over and dies. Then Jesus explains the parable. He says, these are they who receive the word, immediately receive it with joy. That is, they seem to be the most promising of the crop. But afterward, when tribulation and persecution comes, then in fact, they, they, they never do produce any fruit. Jesus says, by their fruit you shall know them. If they never produce any fruit, where do they belong? They started off seeming to be the most promising of the crop, but they end up producing no fruit. So it seems to me that what we have here again is a warning against people who have in some sense begun, begun well. Phenomenologically, they're Christians. That is, they're accepted as baptized members in good standing in the local church. But on the other hand, if they don't persevere, according to chapter 3, which we've read before chapter 6, that already shows that in the ultimate sense, they're not Christians. And then there are just so many other texts that really do insist that, that if you really do have eternal life, it springs up into eternal life. The Lord knows those who are his and, and the, the golden chain of, 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 of Romans uh, 8 and so on, so on, so on. So I still think that it is possible to insist on the security of the believer without some sort of easy believism switch or something like that. I know that this has a bearing on how you understand the next step, the whole doctrine of assurance, but that's another question. Well, you, you have to be careful with the historical context. I mean, there is some dispute amongst the serious commentators. Start with, for, some, for example, someone like Peter O'Brien. There is some dispute as to whether or not they primarily have converted Jews in mind who are tempted to go back to Judaism. In my view, that's most likely. But some actually wonder if it's converted Gentiles who are tempted to go into Judaism. But there's no hint that they've all got wiped out by Rome in AD 70. And that's just pure speculation. So one, one has to see how the arguments work textually and avoid too much speculation about, about possible backgrounds. Yeah. At this rate, we have time for two more questions. Matt Dirks, Harbor Church in Kamuki. Uh, you, you said that uh, people either get harder or softer over time. And I'm going to take this a little out of context, but I just would like to find out from you uh, are there things, uh, what are the things that you've gotten maybe firmer in over the years, and what are the things that you've gotten softer right. in over the years? 
Right, and the generalization that I first gave is only a generalization, as it is only in the text. I mean, there's some people who get harder and harder and harder, and then the Lord converts them, and then they get softer and softer and softer. Um, you, you know, I've seen people converted at the age of 84. Uh, so so we, we, we want to keep saying the Lord's hand is not shortened, that he, he cannot save. We don't want to start getting into that, uh, into, into that uh, sort of mythology. But um, it's not so much that I have gone through some sort of major reversals in my thinking. Uh, but but uh, um, at the risk of telling a story on myself, uh, Mark Dever, does that name mean anything to you here? He's pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist in Washington, D.C., uh, director of Nine Marks or behind the is behind nine marks and so on. Um, he, he has a way of constantly taking the mickey out of me. And he, he says that what I do is complexify things and then resolve them. Now, um, he, he's probably right, although I never thought of it that way. That is to say, when I see something, uh, I, I tend to sort of analyze it and in my analysis make it more complex before I then start to resolve it. So my, my little book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, um, people have a lot of trouble sort of sorting out how to think about the love of God. And I, quote, complexified it by, by, talking, by showing that there are five different ways in which the Bible talks about the love of God. And when you see those different ways, then, then I could outline them for you now. If, 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 do, you, do you know what I'm talking about? The, 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 the little book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God? Yeah? And, and um, uh, when, when you see those different ways, uh, which makes the subject a little more complex then actually you can resolve how to understand a lot of different passages a lot better because the thing's been complexified first. So that my years and years and years and years of, of study have tended to help me think things through a little more like how does the New Testament use the old so that it came out in the Beale Carson volume that, that has complexified the issue. But it's complexified in such a way that if you begin to understand the complexities, in fact, you've simplified it. You, you really do see that it makes sense for the Bible to use the text that way. Do, 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 you know what I mean? So that in terms of my becoming stronger on some issues, it's usually come about because I have had time and energy and enough decades to start thinking how the Bible actually works this stuff out. And it, it often works it out, out with subtleties that I missed when I was 25. And... and and with more time, I've thought them through a little more. And whereas I still have such a long way to go, and I'm horribly ignorant compared to what I should know, yet at the same time, I've complexified some things. And as a result, I, I, I think I can handle texts a little better than I could earlier because of those steps. And so, so um, I think that I think more clearly today about the atonement than I did 35 years ago. I think that... I'm a little better able to talk about the Trinity believingly today, uh, believably today than 35 years ago. Um, I've spent a lot of time on the doctrine of Scripture, um, and I'm working on another book on it now. So I, I, I think in those areas where I've spent more time studying, I, I have a little more firmness uh, and ability to handle things. Um, but I would want to say that there's a similar process that goes in the life of many pastors. One of, one of the revered pastors in my own background is a chap called Dick Lucas. And what he did for years and years and years and years was devote a year at a time to studying a particular biblical book. I mean, quite apart from his preaching, 
he, he devoted a year of his time to studying a biblical book. Well, you live enough years, boy, you get 66 books behind you. you, you know? and, and then with time, he got good enough at this that he would then, toward the end of that year, um, teach what he had learned to small groups of pastors. You know, I've been studying the book of Nahum for the last year. These are some things that I've learned. And give a day seminar on the book of Nahum. Isn't that, isn't that great? But can you imagine how that's, that's sort, of, sort of stabilizing him on all kinds of doctrinal issues and how your book Bible goes together and quotation issues and theological themes and so on? You know, there are a lot of ways of doing that, but, but that's something that most pastors could do by s- simple prioritizing of their schedules a wee bit. Um, uh, in terms, of, in terms of, of, of softening up on things, partly because my job has taken me to many corners of the world. I probably become far more flexible on cultural matters than than I was as a young man. As a young man, you only know one culture, or two, I knew two. I was brought up in English and French, but but you travel to enough places and see enough Christians doing enough things. You may have opinions about them, but you become far more tolerant to the cultural diversities amongst brothers and sisters in Christ when you. Uh, yeah. So. Um, you, you know that's that's probably the case, and that's not a bad thing to happen nowadays. Um, when uh, uh, I was I was brought up with strict notions of time um, and being on time and so on. In Hawaii, it doesn't work like that. In a- in Africa, it doesn't work like that. In India, it doesn't work like that. And and they always here they call it Hawaiian time. In Africa, they call it African time. And so. so it, but, but 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 you know my but temperamentally structurally I'm I'm bound up with tight schedules and discipline and all of that but I realize that that, that there's another way of doing things you know and um, and and e- even in some dress behavior and some codes of conduct um, uh, these things vary enormously in different corners of the way. sense of humor sense of humor I mean that's 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 a, that's huge the first time I went to Australia. In Australia, they have this expression, cut down the tall poppy. You, you know, anybody sticks up to a slap them down. And, and so the, uh, the first time, it was, it was 1985. I was giving the Moore College lectures. And the first night I was introduced, I was this wonderful yada, 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 yada. The next night, introduced by some other faculty member who felt that he had to do the first guy. And so, so I, I was achieving a wonderful, I mean, one of the best scholars in the whole wide world, no yeah. doubt about it. And by the third night, I was approaching close to apostolic status, you know. But by that time, I had been there long enough to realize that's not, not how they talk to each other, you, you know. They insult each other and then sit around and laugh gloriously. And, and that's, that's funny. So the third night, after I'd been introduced like this, I said, I don't know who this joker thinks he is, you know. But, but I don't know who's the bigger sinner, him for telling all these lies about me or me for enjoying them. <laughs> Well, they all laughed, and after that, and the successive nights, I was introduced only by by insults, <laughs> and and I, and I knew that I had arrived. You, 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 you know? But when I go to China, nobody would introduce me with an insult. I mean, absolutely no way. There, it's it's you know the Reverend Doctor Professor and all this. In fact, a few years ago, I went to China, and and I was introduced as as just having had my sixtieth birthday. Can you imagine anybody in the West introducing you by giving away your birthday? No way. No way. That's supposed to be deep secret. But, of course, in China, they were giving me a compliment. They were really saying, you might actually be worth listening to. At least he's 60. You know? So, 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 but those are things that you, 
you, you run with after a while, you, you, you know? Uh, and they, they don't really mean all that much. They're just different cultural things. Enjoy them. Enjoy them. We'll have all eternity getting used to them. Um, Is that you? Um, David Amin from Kukuyilani Baptist and also Milani. Thank you again for what you've shared here today. And I guess my question, I mean, maybe part of the answer is what you've shared because it's relevant to us as shepherds. But maybe for some of us, and I notice there are some here that we may be a bit... Oh, okay. Okay. We, the question I have, I guess, maybe practically... Uh, for some of us that maybe are not as well up in years, a little bit younger, more youthful, even like what Timothy may have been, but and some of us look pretty young too, are there some practical admissions that looking back and maybe you saying, well, you know, these are some things that I probably should have thought more about or paid more attention to as a younger Minister, things like that. So I just thought maybe you had some ideas or practical thoughts to just admonish us. Um, it's very hard to answer that question because because um, it's 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 asking somebody with four decades of experience what he would do if he only had four years of experience. And the fact of the matter is, if I had four years of experience, I would do what I did when I had four years of experience. I mean, hindsight is a wonderful thing to, to brag about. You, you, you know what I mean? But there are an awful lot of things that, are, that you learn along the road. And, and, and so that I could have given you correct answers 40 years ago, but that doesn't mean that they were nestled properly in place. And, and then it's worse than that, even. Um, the closer you get to the light, the more you see the dirt. So, so, I I like the words of of uh, John Newton, who was the converted slave trader who wrote uh, who who wrote uh, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Um, he wrote, "I am not what I want to be. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what one day I will be." but I am not what I was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. So that the Christian who lives for decades and serves can look back and simultaneously say, yeah, I wish I'd done that better. I wish I had been more consistent in, in, in personal devotions, for example. Or I had been, wish I had um, been more aggressive in evangelism. Or I wish I had been wiser in that particular account. You live long enough, there are things in your life that you wake up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night and think about and think, oh, I wish I'd done that one differently. Yeah, you know, and cheer up, the older you get, the more of them you have to remember. Um, so I, I can tell you all about those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, um, even when you can look back and say, I wish I could start again now with what I know now, the truth of the matter is I'm still so far from what I ought to be and I'm perhaps more aware of it now than I was when I was 40. 
But how do you teach that to somebody who's 25? Um, when I was a young man, I planted three churches and pastored another. And there are times when I think it would be really fun to step away from Trinity and the Gospel Coalition now and go and try and plant a couple more. But it's probably unrealistic. Um, my energy levels are not quite the same. Um, I want to be an encouragement to those who are planting churches on the front end today. And if I can give them some advice and help, that's, that's also terrific. But it is another generation. And, and I, I, don't want, I don't want to come across as talking down from my high vantage point of many decades of experience and so on. I've arrived now, let me tell you how it's done. I don't think that's the way the gospel works. I think, I, I, I think it, it finds all of us saying with Paul, imagine approaching Paul and asking, you know, come on now, Paul, um, what would you do over well, that's not quite the way he words it. The way he words it in Philippians 3 is, um, Brothers, I do not think that I have arrived, but I press on for the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable to his death. And, and, and that's where I, f I find myself, rather than having a, achieved a certain summit from which I may dispense golden words of advice. So... In a meeting like this, I think that we ought, in not only in formal concourse, but in private conversations, to be finding ways to build one another up in our most holy faith. Is that just ducking your question? I hope not. Mr. Chairman, are we done?